Well, good morning, family. Before you take your seats, don't take your seats yet. I just want to welcome you all to church on this Resurrection Sunday. Just tell someone next to you, do you know it's Resurrection Sunday? <laughs> you know what this means, right? For Christians, Resurrection Sunday means absolutely everything. You see, on Friday, Satan thought that he had my Jesus conquered and defeated, but he didn't know what was coming. Because on Friday, Mary was crying, Peter was denying, and the Pharisees were lying. On Friday, they mocked my Jesus and tore his flesh to pieces. On Friday, his blood was dripping, his feet were tripping, and his hands were gripping as he made his way up to Calvary. On Friday, he was nailed and he paled to that old rugged cross. It was on Friday that his body was so diminished that he said, it is finished, and he gave up his spirit. It was on Friday that it had seen that Satan had won and that all hope was gone, but he didn't know that Sunday was coming. Tell someone next to you, he didn't know. He didn't know that my Jesus was punished on Friday so that on Sunday we might be forgiven. He didn't know that he was wounded so that we might be healed. He didn't know that Jesus was made sin on our behalf on Friday so that on Sunday we might receive his righteousness. He didn't know that Jesus endured our rejection so that we might have acceptance with the Father. He didn't know that Jesus tasted death for us so that we might share his eternal life. He didn't know that Jesus was made a curse on Friday that we might receive the blessing on Sunday. At church, he didn't know that we would be in this place today celebrating the resurrection of our Savior 2,023 years later. He didn't know, but my Jesus did. Can I declare to you this morning that the stone is rolled away, that the grave is empty, that the Lord is risen and is alive, and He has fulfilled every prophecy and every promise so that you and I can be reconciled to the Father. We gather this morning to celebrate what no other faith can lay claim to, a risen Savior and a mighty Lord who is sitting at the right hand of the Father interceding for you and me. Can we give him a mighty shout of praise for that? Yes, we praise you, Jesus. What a mighty God we serve, amen? Amen. Wow. What a special day this is for us as Christians. Our Lord and Savior is alive. He is not dead. He is alive. Amen. Amen. You may take your seats this morning. Thank you so much to our worship team. Let's give them a round of applause. Church, it's good to be with you all this morning. And today we're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the chapter that is widely known as the resurrection chapter. If you have your Bibles, go with me to 1 Corinthians 15. And while you're finding your way there, let me just lay a platform for where we're going. 
Quick question, is there anyone here this morning that watches sermons and other types of Christian content on YouTube? I like to listen to certain pastors who I find theologically sound, and what YouTube does is it will continually suggest other similar type of content that I, I may like so that it will keep me continually engaged. That's how these social media platforms work. But specifically, if you are watching Christian content, what you'll find is that there are many videos out now where people are taking what some pastors say and what some Christian, uh, Christians do, and they're completely tearing these, these uh, pastors or Christians or, or churches apart. Now, whether these issues are right or wrong, I don't necessarily agree with what they're doing because I feel that most of the time these videos either divide the body of Christ or if non-believers are, are watching these videos, they will look at the Christian community and say, what a sorry bunch of people these are because they can't seem to agree on anything. Right? Who knows what I'm talking about? But every so often, you really find a gem among all these alarmist videos where you find courageous men and women of God fighting for a really worthy cause. Where despite severe pressure from a progressive culture that is infiltrating society and even their own churches, they stand up against the woke agenda and they stand up against all this inclusivism even within the church. And despite the chaos and compromise that we see around us, there are still some sound voices of truth within the church that will say what needs to be said because they would rather be hated by society than disobey God. You see, there's a progressive movement of Christianity that's sweeping the world at the moment where they are moving away from what God says in His Word about things like same-sex marriages, about homosexuality, and they are actually apologizing, and they are saying, you know what, we were actually wrong about these issues in the past. And it's actually okay to be a homosexual or transgender Christian because it's just like any other disability that a Christian may have to live with. For example, you may have heard about this, but a megachurch pastor said recently that homosexual or transgender Christians are just like those Christians in a wheelchair. Because just like a person who is physically disabled, that has prayed to be set free from that disability, but remains disabled for the rest of their lives, homosexual people may also have prayed to be set free from their disability of wanting to be in homosexual relationships, but God hasn't done that for them. So therefore, we should openly accept their lifestyles like we would a Christian in a wheelchair that will battle with their disability for the rest of their lives. Now, can you see how they start to play on people's emotions, but how far they are moving away from the truth in God's Word? As part of this movement of, of progressive Christianity, there are those within this movement that are saying that Jesus, yes, He was a true historical figure represented in the Bible, but He's not God and He's not the only way to heaven. When you hear this, this type of behavior reminds me of a scripture in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, where it says, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. And from such people, turn away. Or as it says in the NIV version, they will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that. And you know, church, I don't want to sound like one of those alarmists that I've just mentioned, but there is so much deception out there. And as I've said before from this pulpit, I believe we are going into an era of the church 
where it's going to be really difficult to live out your Christian life without being canceled, without being persecuted or hated because of what you stand for. Even though you're standing for the best possible outcome for mankind, you are going to be hated by those that don't like the truth. And if you're reading these things, and if you've heard these things, you know what I'm talking about. But the really sad thing for me is that the church globally is slowly starting to give in to these progressive agendas. And once you start doing that, the fundamental doctrines of the Bible don't mean anything anymore. And that's why people can start to say things like, Jesus is not the only way to heaven. Why? Because you've just said to me, it's okay for me to live out my disability. You've even apologized to me, which means that the Bible was wrong on that issue. So why can't I now believe that the Bible was wrong on other issues like the resurrection and the deity of Jesus and whether or not he is the only way to heaven? But you see, church, if you disagree with the fundamental truths and doctrines of the Bible, you don't have the right to call yourself a Christian. You can call yourself a good person someone who admires the life and works of Jesus, you can call yourself enlightened. You can even be a professor in biblical theology. But if you don't believe that Jesus came to fulfill the law and all of prophecy, that he died on the cross, he was buried and raised on the third day, that he ascended to heaven and he's sitting at the right hand of the Father interceding for you and me, and that he will come back for his church one day, that he will come back for his bride, then you literally don't have the right to call yourself a Christian. You may have a, a form of godliness, but you deny the power thereof. And the reason I'm telling you all of this today with, with such urgency is because what we're going to cover today, church, is one of the most important, if not the most important doctrines of all of Christianity. The doctrine of the resurrection. And I want to just caution you in advance because it's out there more than you may think that even some Christians, so-called Christians, deny this doctrine. And they say that it's not that central to Christianity. And that Christianity will do just fine without the resurrection. But if you hear that, you need to, you need to believe today, you need to know today, as I will explain to you from the Word of God, that whoever speaks like that is not an ambassador of truth and Christ. They are, in fact, an ambassador of deception, and Satan himself. And that's why I've titled my message today, The Resurrection or Nothing. The Resurrection or Nothing. And church, what we're going to cover this morning is really something significant and fundamental to what we believe and what we stand for as Christians. So I really want you to stay engaged. And if you hear something that resonates with you, please respond to me this morning, right? Is that Okay. Can I hear at the back say amen? amen? In the front, can I hear you say amen? Amen. 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 So we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 15, specifically verses 1 through 20, which addresses the issue of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as I've already alluded to, the resurrection is really the fundamental doctrine of Christianity. It is the crux of our faith because everything else that we believe hinges on the resurrection. In fact, there is this validation and verification of everything we believe as Christians that we find in the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And because this is such an important topic, I don't want to just give you 
my opinion this morning, we're going to look together how the Apostle Paul really fleshes out the importance of this doctrine in these specific verses and the arguments that he presents us. And what Paul does here is he presents us with, with three main arguments. And what you will see as he goes through these arguments, he just strengthens this argument more and more. If you take your notes this morning, number one, in verses one and two, he addresses the argument and evidence of authority. Number two, in verses three through 11, he addresses the evidence from a historical point of view. And number three, in verses 12 through 19, he gives this argument and evidence from a logical point of view. So let's get into the word and and start to dig out the gold that Paul is showing us here. Verses 1 and 2 says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. The first bit of evidence that Paul is highlighting here, the first thing that he reminds him of is saying, listen, you've heard from me before. You've heard me preach this gospel to you before. And to just bring a bit of context for you, there are those surrounding the Christian community in Corinth who want to be Christians, but they still want to hold on to their own worldview. A worldview, by the way, that excluded the very concept of resurrection. According to their worldview, the idea that anyone could be raised from the dead was just a crazy concept It was just absolutely ludicrous. And you know, when I was thinking about this, this is really relevant for us as well. Because we live in a day and age where the predominant worldview in our culture is the worldview of secular humanism. Have you heard of that before? And I don't have a lot of time to explain what that means in its entirety, but in short, secular humanism is a philosophy, belief system, or life stance that embraces human reason, secular ethics, and philosophical naturalism, and listen to this, while specifically rejecting religious doctrine, supernaturalism, and even superstition as the basis of morality and decision-making. So it's this idea where nature is a closed system and matter is all that matters. If you can't see it, touch it, hear it, taste it, smell it, it's just not real. Which means that by definition, there is no supernatural. So according to a secular humanist, even though they may talk about God and and higher powers, according to their worldview, there is no supernatural. And when they talk about God, they're not talking about Him in a theistic sense. They're talking about some theoretical being or power or spirit that unites us and the universe altogether. Right? And we can all sing Kumbaya together. So let me give you an example. A person who is a secular humanist who wanted to attach themselves to a Christian community would be a person who on the one hand would, would deny even the possibility of a resurrection, but on the other hand would want to hold Jesus in high esteem. And do we know people like that in our world today? Of course we do. Of course we do. You'll be surprised by how many professors today who know the Bible back to front, who have written books on the Old Testament and the New Testament, 
who know the Bible better than 99% of Christians do and absolutely adore the literature of the Bible, but are unbelievers who don't believe in things like the resurrection. They hold Jesus in high esteem, yes. But when it comes to things about his deity and about the resurrection, they don't believe that. And you know what, church? You may even have someone like that in your own family. They hold Jesus in high esteem, but, but that's where it ends. And you know, most religions are exactly the same. Even Muslims are like this. In the Quran, Jesus is called Isa, and Isa is a highly esteemed, honored, and revered prophet. But when it comes to the resin, resurrection, absolutely not. Definitely not. Buddhists also hold Jesus in very high esteem. As a wonderful man, a, a teacher, a wise sage, and even a mighty prophet. But the resurrection? Mm, not so much. Right, so don't think that this is just some random event or worldview that only Paul had to deal with back then. It is just as true today. And again, some of you may have friends and family members who revere Jesus, but don't believe in the supernatural power of Jesus. That's why Paul says in verses 1 and 2, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand and by which you are being saved. He preached it, they received it, they are standing in it, and they are saved by it. But did you see, there's an if clause there. If you hold firmly to the word that I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. And church, what Paul is saying here is, and let me just break this down because this is important. Paul is saying that if you believe the gospel that I preached and the way that I preached it, and if this is what you have received and what you have taken your stand on, then you are being saved. However, if you are believing in something other than the gospel, something less than the gospel, or something more than the gospel that I preached to you, then you've believed in vain and your faith is empty, your faith is meaningless. In other words, what Paul is saying is that an individual who calls himself a Christian while denying the essential doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is actually not a Christian at all. They don't have the right to call themselves a Christian. Let me give you an illustration. I'm looking for a chair. If I placed a chair here for a purpose, right, because I knew that after my message I would come and sit down. Let's say, for instance, there was a, a play or something. Be careful, don't trip there. <laughs> or someone was going to give a testimony. But you know, while I was preaching, the chair, someone came in and removed that chair during my time of preaching, and I didn't know that they removed it, right? So after I preached, I just walked back and I, and I sat down without knowing. Here's the question. Do I believe with every part of my being that the chair is still there? Yes, because I put it there. But will my belief in itself hold me up when I sit down? No. Why? Because the object of my belief would no longer exist. And you see, the point is, your faith is only meaningful if the object of your faith is meaningful. Amen? And Paul says, if the object of your faith is a Jesus who was not raised, your faith is meaningless, it is vain. You cannot deny the resurrection and be a Christian. You just cannot have it both ways when it comes to this issue. 
That's the argument and evidence from authority. Paul's first argument is you are not allowed to identify yourself as a Christian when you deny the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. Which means, church, that for those individuals who are professors of theology with PhDs and and doctorates and, and all of these type of things who are denying the essentials of the Christian faith, they're not Christians. And listen, in case anyone is offended by that this morning, I'm not saying this. The Bible is saying this, right? I'm just the messenger. This is not my own opinion. Let's have a look at the second argument from evidence. Paul is expanding and strengthening his argument, and he says from verse 3, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. Would we want that said about our lives, that God's grace to us would not be without effect? He continues to say, No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I, Paul, or they, anyone who preaches this gospel, this is what we preach and this is what you believed. So remember, Paul's first argument from authority is you're saying that you're a Christian, which means that you believe in the gospel that I preached. And now he's saying, here is the gospel that I preached in these verses, and he summarizes it for them. And this is by no means everything that Paul preached, but these are essential doctrines. And the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ are exactly that. What Paul is saying is that if you don't believe the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, then you don't believe the gospel that I preached. And if you don't believe the gospel that I preached, then stop calling yourself a Christian, right? He's now strengthening his argument. Very, very strong and and direct words from Paul, and it may even come across as offensive to some. But Paul's desire in preaching the gospel, church, we need to get this, is not to shut people out. It is to welcome people in. Come on. When you hear this, there's this kind of sting of offense to this, right? But we need to understand the perspective here. Paul is not saying, you know what, I'm a member of an exclusive group of people, right? So stop claiming to be part of this exclusive group of people. No, Paul's heart is, I preach the gospel because I want you to believe. I preach the gospel because I want you to be a Christian, right? But you're not believing the gospel that I preach, which means that firstly, stop calling yourself a Christian, and secondly, repent and believe the gospel that I preach because that's the only way in. Amen? Can you see the difference here? Paul is saying that I want you to hear me correctly. I want you to hear my heart. I want you to hear the truth that sets you free. And he gives three reasons why we should believe the gospel that he preached. Let me show you this quickly. 
Firstly, he speaks about fulfilled prophecy. Look at verse 3 again. He says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. That's the first thing. He goes to the Scriptures, right? I preach to you that Christ fulfilled the prophecies that we have in the Scriptures in the Old Testament. Very, very important to believe that and to understand that. That's number one. Look at the second one. He uses the evidence of eyewitness accounts. In verse 5, he says that Jesus appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, right? And church, we've got to understand this as he's starting to build his argument. The amazing thing here is that if Paul is saying at least half of who he has just mentioned are still alive, and if you take into account the reference to the 12 and the apostles, you have, over, you have well over 300 people still alive while Paul is, is writing this letter. And why is that so significant, you may ask? Because that means that the evidence is falsifiable. That means that the evidence is falsifiable. And I know that sounds like a bad thing, but if you're in a court of law, falsifiable is actually a really good thing. Let me explain. If you're in a courtroom, let's say, for instance, Uncle Bill, you've been, you've been convicted of something falsely accused, and you're in a courtroom, and you're offering evidence, and you give your testimony. Will they believe you because you're convincing, and you're a nice person, and you dress nicely? That's not going to help you at all, right? But if you can say, yes, here's my testimony, and there are over 300 people whom you can ask that will verify my testimony, that's a whole different level of evidence. In other words, don't just believe me. If I'm lying, you can go right now and find people who will tell you if I'm lying. That's what it means for something to be falsifiable. It means I'm offering you evidence that you can go right now and check if I'm lying as opposed to you just believing me because it's my truth. Amen? And you know what, church? This is what separates Christianity from every other religion in the world. Right? This is not some man who had a religious experience, who had a spiritual visitation and wrote with no corroboration, and you just have to believe him. No. Right? He's saying right now, today, as I write this, there are over 300 people, and you can find these people, you can lay your hands on these people, and you can ask these people. That's the second reason, indisputable eyewitness testimony. Can you see how he's starting to strengthen his argument here? The third reason he gives for believing in the gospel that he preached is his own personal experience. Now, church, that's important, right? But on its own, it doesn't carry much weight. You know, sometimes when we, we're testifying and we're witnessing, we lead with how God has transformed us, but we, we don't, or sometimes we don't offer anything else. You know, my personal story is everything, but on its own, actually, it's not. You see, without the other pieces of evidence, Paul's personal story and our personal story will carry very little weight. Because it's the fulfillment of biblical prophecy, the indisputable evidence of eyewitness testimony, and oh, by the way, 
there's me, right? Paul puts the emphasis of himself right at the end. And maybe that's a good example for us when we go and testify, we go and witness, you know what? Yes, God has changed my life, but guess what? My God has fulfilled all prophecy. He was crucified, he was buried, and he was raised on the third day. Amen? Now, what we're going to focus on in the last part of this message is Paul's argument from a logical point of view. So he's given all this evidence up to this point. And now he's going to say, this is not logical. You've got to either accept this or you don't. And there are certain things that he points out here that cannot be denied. There's no gray areas when it comes to these principles. You are either in or you're out. He says from verse 12, now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? He's referring to the people in Corinth who don't believe in the resurrection. He's just reaffirming that. Verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. I'm talking logically now, right? The first thing that he points out here that it can't be denied from a logical point of view is that if there is no resurrection, then by implication, you're saying that Christ hasn't risen. Right? Logical. Verse 14, and if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. The second thing that he points out here is that if Christ hasn't risen, then our preaching is worthless and your faith is meaningless. Amen? Can I get an amen in the house? Verse 15, more than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. Right? The third thing that he points out here that cannot be denied from a logical point of view is that if you deny the resurrection, your faith is empty. Why? Because the object of your faith is non-existent. If there is no resurrected Christ in whom you can place your faith, your faith is meaningless. It is futile. Verse 16, as we go but deeper, for if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. Church, the fourth thing that he points out here is that if we have testified about a risen Christ and you're saying that he hasn't been raised, then you're calling the preacher a liar. And every other preacher that has preached this gospel since Jesus has ascended into heaven is a liar. And you know what? People will hear that and say, you know what? I'm not calling you a liar. I'm okay for you to you know, live according to your truth. I'll have my truth and you live by your own truth. But in fact, no matter which way you look at it, logically speaking, you have no other choice. Because if there is no resurrection, then my entire life and ministry which is built on the proclamation of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, is wrong, and I am a liar. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Now it starts to get a little bit challenging here. The fifth thing that he points out here that cannot be denied is that if there is no resurrection, there is no forgiveness of sins. If there is no resurrection, you are still in your sins. If there is no resurrection, the great exchange hasn't taken place, and all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
which means that sinful man left to himself can face nothing but the justice of a righteous God and the wrath of a righteous God. But we know what the Bible says, right? In Isaiah chapter 53, it says, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, Christ died for sin. He was the sinless one. The perfect Lamb of God, the Son of God wrapped in flesh. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that on the cross, Christ died as our substitute. You see, for thousands of years, lambs and bulls were brought to the altar to be sacrificed. So that God could show us a picture that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. But these things were just a prophecy or a foreshadowing of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So that Christ, the God-man who knew no sin, would be sacrificed that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And church, the only evidence that God has accepted this great exchange, guess what? Is that Jesus didn't stay dead. Come on, give him some glory and praise in this place. Verse 18. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. The sixth thing that he points out here is that if there is no such thing as a resurrection... Your loved ones who have died before you are truly lost and, and you'll never see them again. Right? This is from a logical point of view, if that's what you're saying. But you know, it's amazing to me that on one hand, people want to argue that there's no such thing as a resurrection. But when somebody dies, they want to talk about people resting in peace. They want to talk about seeing them again, right? But if your worldview does not have room for resurrection... Christ is not raised, preaching is vain, faith is vain, I'm a liar, you are still in your sins, and the people who have died before you are lost to us, and you will, they will never be reunited with them again one day. You can't have it both ways. But even people who want to deny the essential doctrines of the Bible want to have hope when they stand before a closed coffin one day, and when they see that coffin going down into the grave. Verse 19, as, as Paul starts to now solidify his argument on, on logic, he says in verse 19, If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. The final thing that he points out here from a logical point of view is that if only in this life we have hope in Christ, church, we are of all people most to be pitied. We are the most pathetic and sorry bunch of people on the earth if there is no resurrection. And if that were the case, what are we doing here today? What are we doing here every Sunday? Why not just end it all, leave here, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we all die? I mean, that's logical, right? right? If there's no resurrection, if the resurrection isn't true, why bother? Why go to all the effort to live out your Christian life? Because it is a, a sacrificial life. Why not just demolish this building, we'll make the school a bit bigger, and we forget about it all? But hang on a minute. Hang on a second. Look at the beginning of verse 20. I want you to see what it says there. What does it say? But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. 
And here's the amazing part of it all. The argument from authority is based on the fact that Christ is risen. That's been proven. The argument from historical evidence is based on the fact that Christ is risen. That's fact, which means, church, that when he gives the argument from logic, what he's saying here is that these are seven things that cannot be denied if you are arguing against the resurrection. But oh, by the way, since I've already proved the authority and historical evidence that Christ is raised, you actually get to turn the tables and flip the script. Which means, and I want you to get excited with me, because this is something significant for you as a, a, a believer in Jesus Christ. Which means, number one, Christ is risen. He's not dead, He is alive. Christ is risen, which means, number two, preaching is not vain. But it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Amen? Number three, your faith is not empty. Because you've actually placed your faith in the Christ, in Christ himself who is raised. And in the same power that raised Christ from the dead, number four, I'm not a liar. I'm a truth teller. And I'm telling the most important truth that any man or woman will tell to another man or woman. Number five, I'm not in my sins anymore because they were buried with Christ and I am forgiven. Number six, those who have died before me in Christ are not lost to me. I know where they are and I will be reunited with them one day. And number seven, you're going to hear a lie one day. That Ryan de Klerk has died and he's no more. Church, don't you believe it? Amen. Don't you believe it? Because though I die, I will rise with Christ my Lord. Right? It will not be the end of me because Christ is raised and I will be raised with him. Don't pity me or anyone else who holds on to these truths. Rather pity those who want to hold on to Jesus without holding on to the resurrection. Pity the ones who absolutely have no hope because they have no resurrected Lord and Savior. Don't you dare pity the ones who believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of the only begotten Son of God. Because they are indeed the only ones who have real hope that Christ is risen. And church, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ not was Lord but is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And the only reason he is Lord and not was Lord is because Christ is risen and because there is no grave that can hold his body down. Amen? And because he's walking out of the grave, I'm walking too. Amen. Amen. Let's just give him some praise and glory for his word this morning.